Uh, if you would, take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 5. We'll be reading the first five verses of uh, this letter from Peter. Uh, before we read, I'll just remind you as we go through the month of August that we're looking at passages that are related to officer qualifications and the work of the elder and the deacon. We kind of snuck one in, as I mentioned earlier, at the end of July. Just happened to work out that the, the preaching through Acts schedule, we, we hit the uh, Acts chapter 6 with the beginning of the office of the deacon there, and so we've already covered a little bit of uh, the qualifications and the work of deacons in the church Last week, we looked at 1 Timothy 3 and uh, focused particularly on the, the character qualifications of those who would be called to serve as elders in the church of Jesus Christ. Uh, and then today, we look at uh, Peter's first letter as he describes the, the particular work of the elder in a little bit more detail. Uh, so if you're able, let's stand together as we read from this portion of God's Word. Pay careful attention. This is God's word for his people. Peter writes, Therefore I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. You younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders, and all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Father, as we give our attention to your word, we pray that you might open our eyes, so we might behold wonderful things from your word. Help us to see Jesus, our great shepherd, and to see ourselves in the light of his loving care for us. We ask all of this through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Uh, I think that if anyone would have been disqualified from writing these instructions to elders, to leaders in the church, it would have been Peter. Uh, Peter would have been at the top of that list of men that probably you and I would not have chosen to give these instructions to other leaders in the church. Um, we probably know, I think, more about Peter, uh, his personality, his life, uh, than we do about any other apostle in the New Testament, even, even Paul, who wrote uh, significantly more than Peter did in the New Testament. Uh, we know about Peter's life from the Gospels. He, he plays a prominent role among Jesus' 12 uh, disciples, that original uh, core group that surrounded Jesus in his earthly ministry. Peter was one of the, the three uh, particular disciples that were close to the heart of Jesus, Peter, James, and John. Uh, but the Gospels and even the, the book of Acts provide us uh, with somewhat of a detailed portrait of Peter, what his personality was like, his weaknesses, his strength. Peter is a leader, but he seems hasty at times. 
He sometimes speaks before he thinks, which may be a problem for some of us. And yet, even while he sometimes rushes to judgment about things and and speaks uh, hastily, he also rushes to faith. He's the one who gets out of the boat when he sees Jesus walking on the water because he believes that if Jesus is there and Jesus is bidding him to come, that he won't sink. And so Peter rushes to faith. He is the first to confess Christ and that wonderful turning point in the Gospels where Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter is the first one to acknowledge that in this particular way. And yet then he's immediately rebuked by Christ uh, for, for thinking that Jesus can somehow shortcut the cross and not be betrayed and handed over and crucified. Peter is the first one to tout his unswerving commitment to Christ. All others may leave, he told Jesus, but I will not forsake you. And yet he is the one who denies Jesus three times in Jesus' darkest hours before going to the cross. So I think it's fair to say that if you and I were going to choose uh, the, the guy to write the instructions to church leaders, you might not pick Peter. You might pick John, but, but probably not Peter. And yet in many ways, it's Peter's disqualifications, or what we would count as disqualifications, that, that are the very essential ingredients that make him qualified for leadership in the church and then to communicate these instructions to other leaders. Because not only did Peter deny Jesus, but Jesus restored him after his resurrection, uh, appearing to him and the other disciples uh, after his resurrection there on the beach. Three, four, for the three times that Peter denied Jesus, Jesus in turn asked Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Peter's humility through his failure was transformed by Jesus into the very ingredients that were needed for faithful leadership in Jesus' church. And in that experience of grace from Christ, restoring Peter to ministry, Peter learned intimately the task of an elder as Jesus told him, if you love me, tend my sheep. And so as we consider further the work of the elder, uh, here's the main thing I want you to grasp from uh, this passage and as well thinking about who Peter is and and his his life and ministry. Uh, Here's the main thing I want you to know, that elders in the church of Jesus Christ are called to demonstrate their love for Christ by loving the sheep whom Christ himself loves. Elders are called to demonstrate their love for Christ by loving Christ's sheep as well. And and this is, as we see here in Peter's words, this is the metaphor for the elders' work, namely that of being a shepherd, shepherding the flock entrusted to them. Uh, In all of the scripture, this is the primary image that is given to those who are leaders in the church of Jesus Christ, that of a shepherd. It's an ancient metaphor. Uh, If you think about such famous passages as Psalm 23, David, who himself was a shepherd, when he thinks about how the Lord cares for his people, the best metaphor that he can come up with, the most comprehensive one, is to say, the Lord is my shepherd. 
I shall not want. He takes care of everything that I need, all of my needs, the, the Lord meets as my good shepherd. David himself is the shepherd king and provides the model for the great shepherd king who was to come in Jesus Christ. There are prophecies in the Old Testament uh, calling to task those elders in Israel who were failing in their task as shepherds of the people. Rather than guarding and protecting the sheep, Ezekiel tells us, the elders in Israel were, were benefiting at the cost of the sheep themselves. The sheep were starving, but the elders were fat, and they were full. They were benefiting from their neglect of the sheep, and, and Ezekiel calls them to task. The Lord calls them to task for their failure to be shepherds. And in that prophecy in Ezekiel 34, the Lord says, I myself will be the shepherd of my people, fulfilled in Jesus, who is himself the good shepherd who lays down his life for his people. This is an ancient metaphor describing the way God provides leaders for his church. They are to be shepherds, to care for the totality of the spiritual well-being of God's people. It's a comprehensive metaphor. Uh, Tim Whitmer, uh, who, who spoke here in October, in, in his book, The Shepherd Leader, he kind of describes the work of the shepherd, this comprehensive work of the shepherd, with four words. He says that the, the elder's task as shepherd is to do four things to know the sheep, to feed the sheep, to lead the sheep, and to protect the sheep. The shepherd's job is to, to know the sheep. If, if you're an elder in Jesus' church, central and, and absolutely necessary to your task as an elder is to know the sheep that are entrusted to your care. Uh, you, you are entrusted with a particular group of sheep, a particular uh, local church, and the members of that church are entrusted to your care as, uh, as a shepherd. And so it's your job, it's your task to know them, uh, to know where they are weak, to know where they are strong, to know how to encourage them, to know uh, how to lovingly correct them when that's needed. It's your job to know the sheep, to develop personal relationships with them so that you might better serve them. It's also your job to feed the sheep. Uh, feeding, Tim Whitmer says, kind of has, uh, in large part, has to do with teaching feeding spiritually with the word and with prayer, the ministry of the word, both publicly as well as individually, feeding them with spiritual nourishment. Shepherds are to lead the sheep of the church, mostly by example, uh, following Jesus and providing a model of what it looks like to follow Jesus as a faithful disciple in his church. Elders as shepherds are to lead the church. And elders as shepherds are to protect the church, uh, to guard the members of the church, both from threats to doctrine, to what they believe, guarding them against false things and rooting them in the truth of God's word, building upon that firm foundation of the Bible, as well as guarding them from threats to the purity of life that Jesus calls us to as his disciples, guarding both doctrine and life. And all of that work of the shepherd is rooted in the shepherd's knowledge of the sheep, which is why Peter, as he calls the elders to shepherd the sheep, he talks about the flock of God among you. Uh, not, not, not some flock of God out there, not people that you don't know, but the people who are entrusted to you. There's this mutual relationship between the sheep and their shepherd. The aim in all of that 
is that shepherds, elders as shepherds, are aiming to help Jesus' people follow him faithfully and to grow in their knowledge, their love for him, and their depth of appreciation of his grace. It's a work that is best described as the work of a shepherd. But it's a work that also must be done in a certain way. And so Peter not only highlights this metaphor of being a shepherd, but he also highlights for us the manner in which the shepherd must carry out his work. And notice he does this in three contrasting uh, ways in, in, in verse uh, 2 and 3. He calls them to shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, first, not under compulsion, but voluntarily. In other words, they're to carry out this work with a willingness that is rooted in love and faith. They're not simply to take up this work because they feel compelled by outside forces to do it, but rather it's meant to be taken up by the internal compulsion of love for the people of God. You know, perhaps you might have some men who think, well, uh, being an elder in the Church of Jesus Christ is a way to gain some sort of status, or maybe some people feel like, well, my, my father was an elder, this is a tradition in our family, and so I need to do it as well, even though there may not be any kind of internal desire or internal love compelling them to this task, they feel like they must do it possibly even begrudgingly. And I, th I think it's fair to say uh, that for all of us, whether elder, deacon, whatever, for all of us, it's, it's never good if we're serving Jesus merely out of a sense of external duty, a begrudging burden that I must do this because it's what is expected to me of me. All of service to Jesus and his church is meant to be done from a willing heart, a love for the people of God out of a love for Christ. So not under compulsion, uh, Peter says, but rather voluntarily. Duty is no substitute for love and a willing heart. And all that we do must be done in love as a response to Christ's love for us. And so Peter calls the elders there not to act out of compulsion, but out of a voluntary love. It reminds us of Paul's words to Philemon uh, as, as Paul writes to his friend about Philemon's servant Onesimus, who is, who is with Paul uh, in prison, either imprisoned himself or simply there serving and ministering to Paul. Paul writes to Philemon, and, and he tells Philemon, look, I, I, could, I could compel you to let Onesimus stay with me, to, to kind of free him from your service and let him remain with me because he's been such a help to me. I could just simply demand that and require that of you because Paul says, you know, I'm, I'm Paul, I'm an apostle. And, and you might, uh, Philemon, you might be willing to give me Onesimus out of a sense of begrudging duty. But you know what happens when you do something out of that sense of external compulsion. You're always kind of regretting it. You're maybe wishing that you hadn't or, or Philemon, if he had let Onesimus stay with Paul because Paul had demanded it from him, Philemon might have wanted Onesimus back or would have hated Paul for it. And so Paul says, I don't want you to leave Onesimus with me uh, out of some sense of duty. I'm sending him back to you so that whatever you do, you might do out of love and a willing heart. 
the elder is called to carry out his work uh, in a way that comes from the love of Christ and springs from a willing heart, not under compulsion. Peter also highlights that this work is to be carried out um, not out of sordid gain, not for sordid gain, but rather with eagerness. Sordid gain is just simply another way of saying love for money, uh, a love for how it benefits me. Uh, it's often the case that, that people pursue leadership, in, in whether it's in the church or business or whatever the case may be, politics and so forth, that people often pursue those positions of leadership because it, it, it benefits them. They gain something from that. Uh, and and they, they benefit themselves. And if that's the motivation for seeking leadership, then bad things happen. <laughs> if, if you're not seeking leadership for the service of others, Peter says, then you should not be serving in this way. Not seeking to benefit yourself, but rather seeking to serve and to benefit those under your care. And doing so with eagerness. Whether somebody recognizes it, whether somebody pays attention or gives you some token of appreciation or not, uh, you should never do it simply out of love for money, but rather with an eagerness to serve. So not for benefit of self, but for the sake of others. And then third, Paul uh, Peter rather highlights, not as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but rather proving yourselves to be examples to the flock. This is not aiming to build up your own platform uh, to exercise or to abuse authority and power that's been entrusted to you, but rather seeking by example to lead those entrusted to your care. That your task as an elder uh, is not to bring attention to yourself, uh, but rather to build up those who have been entrusted to you, leading them by example and serving them with a glad heart. And then fourth, in addition to these three contrasts, Peter points out that elders are to carry out this work as those who are accountable, as those who will give an answer one day to the chief shepherd. Notice verse 4. When the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Uh, it's a promise of reward for those who faithfully serve, which is used as a motivation to faithfully serve. And Peter is pointing out here that one day, Jesus will appear, and all those who have served in leadership as elders will give an account to the chief shepherd for how they cared for the sheep under their care. It's to be a reminder to those who serve as elders that the sheep that they serve are not theirs, but they belong to Jesus, whose love for his church is far greater even than the love that elders may have for the church of Jesus Christ. And Jesus cares for his people deeply and will one day call to account all those who serve in this way. And so Peter points out the manner of the elders' work, a willingness to serve, serving for the sake of others, leading by example and remembering that we are accountable to the Lord whom we serve. So not only does he point out the manner of the elders' work, but notice finally he points out the mutual humility of elders and the churches that they serve. Notice verse 5. Uh, it kind of comes in, it feels like it's coming in a little bit out of the blue. It's a little bit of an awkward transition as he's talking about elders and their care for the church, and then he directs his attention to the younger men in the church. 
Uh, elders typically in the first century would have literally been elder. They would have been older. Uh, that would have been a normal part of the culture of the church in that day, that those who were serving in leadership uh, had to gain the wisdom needed for leadership simply through experience and, and living their lives longer than others. And so Peter directs his attention to these younger men now in their relationship to the elders who were often older men. You younger men likewise be subject to your elders, and all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. When Peter describes the way we're to be humble, he describes it with this word picture of putting on the clothing of humility. Uh, humility is often called the, the chief virtue among Christians. It's, it's the characteristic that is to uh, characterize all other aspects of the Christian life, whether that's love, leadership, uh, giving and generosity, whatever the case may be, all of it is to be done in humility. And if you think about it, humility is really the fruit of an understanding of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Because humility comes from seeing the holiness, the greatness of God, seeing our sin in light of who he is and what we deserve for our sin, being brought low on account of that, contrite and broken over our sin, and then being lifted up by the God who lowers himself to those who are contrite in heart, broken in spirit over their sin. Humility is at the core a requirement for coming to Christ. Because if you're going to repent of your sin, you have to have humility to acknowledge your sin. If you're going to embrace the grace of God in Jesus Christ, you have to have humility to recognize that you don't deserve it, that we're all unworthy before the face of God. And yet in Jesus Christ, he has made us worthy. God is opposed to the proud, but he exalts those who are humble. He draws near to those who are humble. There's an illustration of this from a man named Charles Simeon. Simeon was a pastor in England at a Holy Trinity Church near Cambridge for 54 years. Most of those years, he was strongly opposed by everybody in the church. Uh, this was a day when you rented the pews in the church, and they had little doors with locks on them. And so for the first part of Simeon's ministry, 54 years is a long time, first part of his ministry, uh, those who owned the pews or rented them, however that worked, they would not unlock them. Uh, so that people could not sit in the pews. People who wanted to hear Simeon preach would bring their chairs into the church so that they could sit in the aisles and listen to him preach. And so those who owned the pews would take the chairs and toss them out in the yard so that if you wanted to hear him, you had to stand. You weren't going to be allowed to sit. He had opposition on almost every side as he faithfully ministered to the church there at Holy Trinity for 54 years. Uh, he was a bit of a, a, a prickly guy. He, he had a little bit of a short temper, uh, and yet he was often humbled by people pointing it out to him. And it turns out that this humility that he had, even, even with his own struggles uh, with his temper and so forth, that it was this humility that fortified him through 54 years of ministry in the face of much opposition. 
And he described these kind of opposing poles of the Christian life of a deep and ever-deepening humility before God as we see our sin, as we see our sin exposed before the Lord, and as we, exalt it, or as we are exalted rather by what the grace of God in Jesus Christ does for us. And he described humility as kind of like a weighty ballast in the bottom of a ship. It's so heavy that it could sink it were it not for the powerful and strong grace of Jesus Christ that keeps us from entering into despair when we see the weight and gravity of our own sin before a holy God. And it was these kind of opposing poles, deep humility over our sin and, and great awe at the grace of God in Jesus Christ toward one who was such a great sinner that bolstered Simeon through 54 years of ministry in the face of opposition. And it's that same type of humility that should characterize elders, those, those who seek to love and to lead, to know, to protect, to feed the, the sheep entrusted to their care by Jesus, the great shepherd. It's a humility that recognizes we're all on the same page. We all are in deep need of the grace of God, and Jesus has met us deeply in that need with an all-sufficient grace a righteousness that covers over all of our sin, a death that counts enough to wash away our sin and to satisfy the very justice of God for us, a humility before God that should characterize all that we do. And there's this mutual humility between the church and those who serve as elders in the church. Humility is required when elders have to lovingly correct somebody in the church and, and lead them to repentance. Humility is required when elders need to be corrected and called to account perhaps for failure or for words spoken unkindly or in haste like Peter. Humility is required for the Christian life is to clothe, we're to be clothed with it, characterizing everything that we do by humility. Peter points out this principle. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. It's a fearful warning a staggering promise. It's rooted in the fact that we follow, trust, love a Savior whose entire earthly ministry was clothed in utter humility. In fact, theologians describe Jesus' earthly ministry as his humiliation. That the Son of God did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped a thing to be held onto tightly, but emptied himself and took the form of a servant, became a man among men, lived in a lowly condition, born to parents in poverty, uh, hardly any room for him at his birth, uh, lived a lowly life, endured the miseries of this life, undergoing even the curse of sin as he bore our sin in his flesh, at the cross, Jesus' entire life is a life characterized by humility, humiliation, so that those who follow Jesus, once humbled, now exalted, ought to clothe themselves with that same humility, that same lowliness of heart that we see in Jesus, the one, the one who did not push sinners away from himself but welcomed them with open heart and love and mercy and grace. When others were prepared to stone the sinner, Jesus said, 
Which of you has not yet sinned? If you, if you have no sin, then go ahead, cast the first stone. He was the only one who had no sin. And yet he embraces the sinner with grace and with mercy and calls us to walk in that same manner, clothing ourselves with the humility that characterizes Jesus himself. From his incarnation through his death, his abandonment by all his friends, including Peter, his own father turning his back on him at the cross so that the world turned dark, representing the wrath of God being poured out on the Son of God, all the way to his burial in a borrowed tomb. Jesus' life is one that is characterized by humility. And therefore, all of God's people, including especially those who serve in leadership and who set an example of what it looks like to follow the Savior, all of us are meant to live our lives clothed with humility toward one another, with this staggering promise God gives grace to the humble. As we prepare to come to the table, uh, perhaps coming to the table is also characterized by those same responses of humility, being reminded of what our Savior endured for his people, the shedding of his blood, the giving of his body at the cross for us, and yet also the wonderful lifting up that comes from knowing this grace is for all those who acknowledge their sin, and who come to Jesus Christ in faith. And that grace lifts us up where we ought to be, uh, even as we maintain humility in our hearts and in our attitudes. So may the Lord himself be our shepherd, even as he provides for us under shepherds to care for and love the church. And may he, through his word, and as we come to the table, grant us a deeper humility, a deeper acknowledgement of who we are before him, and a greater joy in the grace that he has given us in his son, Jesus Christ.